Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. For today's show, we've got uh, a guest, which to be honest, it's the second time round of, of trying to get a podcast. First time we had a few technical gremlins that uh, meant that we couldn't use the audio. So uh, Dane Davis from Nicola Motors very kindly agreed to come back on and uh, and have another go at recording uh, the show. So welcome, Dane. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So if we could uh, if we could just start out, Dane, with a bit of a background on you, um, be really really cool to learn some more about you and uh, where you're from. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I have a pretty unique background. I'm a mechanical engineer at heart, and uh, I've been in the controls and uh, system integration world for most of my career. I've done everything from MEMS technology to large Oshkosh trucks that do airport runway snow removal. And uh, the thing that got me in the catalyst into the like zero emission world and green technology electrification actually was through the hydraulic hybrid world. I developed a hydraulic hybrid system for class eight semi trucks. Oh, wow. I did regenerate braking, uh, stored the energy in hydraulic accumulators. And uh, in the early days, it was a, it was a good fit because hydraulic technology was very developed and very uh, mature. Yeah. And electrification was quite uh, new and Mm. it was still trying to be uh, matured. And so, I transitioned from the hydraulic world to electric world as uh, technology improved. So, oh wow! And that so, so just to, uh, for people who don't know, could you just explain very quickly how a hydraulic hybrid works? Be glad to. The hydraulic hybrid system that I worked on was a parallel hydraulic hybrid system. Okay. Um, the way that works is you have a traditional vehicle that has its powertrain, a diesel engine, transmission. And in parallel of the transmission, you put an additional transmission that recovers braking energy and launches the vehicle from the driveline as opposed to from the engine. And the idea is it reduces the carbon emissions because a lot of the carbon emissions that are emitted in diesel engines come during the acceleration uh, events of the vehicle. That's a large percentage of them. And so it curbed those acceleration um, emissions and reduced the... uh, emissions by like 90% and then it re- also increased the fuel economy by 30%. Oh, wow. So very different. It's a very dirty world. The hydraulics are so. Yeah. Simple though. And I guess at the time the advantage was you had a big uh, reservoir of hydraulic fluid under, under pressure, quite, quite high pressure, I guess, like to store the energy instead of batteries, which the batteries probably just weren't mature enough at the time. Right. So the benefit of hydraulics is they're very, uh, power dense and right. so you can get a lot of torque and so what happens is you would spin up a motor and it turns into a pump and it pumps fluid into a reservoir that uh, is an accumulator that pressurizes okay. and so you have a stored pressure and uh, that stored pressure is then when you accelerate turned into launch pressure and it would propel the vehicle forward 
So you're always dissipating the full amount pretty much and recovering the full amount every time you go through an acceleration event. So there's no long-term storage of energy on the vehicle. Wow. And that's pretty, you know, pretty early, I guess, in hybridization and things for commercial vehicles. So, so what made you jump then into, uh, into the electric world? So the, going from the hydro, hydraulic stuff into electric stuff? Again, it was a, a short-term opportunity where it was a retrofit system. And I was introduced to Trevor Milton in his vision of making a, a true zero emission vehicle. Right. And he had access to some technology from a electrification standpoint that was very intriguing to me. So I ended up leaving my business and joining him in his venture in Salt Lake for uh, about four years ago. Ah, four years ago. So, because yeah, I think one of the, you know, Nicola has, I, I've known you guys for, for a little while now, but you've really burst onto the scene in the last sort of few months, you know, people. People have kind of uh, really sat up and, and taken uh, notice of what you're doing, but it's fairly safe to say. I mean, you're not, I often, it frustrates me a bit because I've seen you described quite a few times as being a startup, but you're not, you know, you, you've thought you've been in this for four years now. So quite, quite a long time already down, uh, down the line in, in vehicle development and powertrain development. Yeah, typical, typical uh, from scratch vehicle development if you if you look at uh, commercial trucks it takes quite a while and we don't have like chassis that we've used in the past we don't have transmissions we've used in the past and so to start this thing from a vision and build it from scratch from the ground up chassis powertrain batteries cab everything that you can think of that goes into a commercial truck that's electrified yeah. didn't exist when we started about four or five years ago yeah so we had to invent and develop a lot of the electrification elements, also bring partners that were in development of electrification and get them accelerating their plans to to provide us solutions that were more commercially available. So that's why you see our partnerships with Bosch and other companies like that, where we've been able to accelerate some of their developments because they pretty much were waiting for a customer yeah. to say, hey, we've been kind of toying around playing in this in this field, but we don't really have anyone that's willing to make the jump and yeah. Nicola said that's our primary path we need to make the jump and so them understanding our business model understanding kind of our timelines they they, they made that jump with us and again it's really accelerated our development but yeah so we're not typ- a typical startup we're not uh, a brand new uh, OEM that's hasn't been doing this we've developed multiple prototypes and multiple mm-hmm. development vehicles and gone through iterations of technologies and so we've learned quite a bit. And then our company right now, I think we're up to 360, 370 employees. Wow. And are on target to uh, to grow, I think, by the end of the year, over 500 employees to 600 employees with with uh, our new manufacturing facility not being even included. So wow. that's a, a big jump from when I started. There was 11 of us, and, uh, yeah. and we were trying to keep our team small and leverage a lot of our partners. But at this point, we are ramping up our internal capabilities while we still leverage partners. So Right, right. And that you, you, your focus is very much over the last few years. I mean, you, you, there have been sort of, well, there are other other business areas that you're getting into or, or in with the sort of utility uh, vehicle and the the, um, the new pickup truck. But really, the, 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 the last few years has been all about developing that um, big uh 
I don't, I don't quite. What is, it, is it class eight in America? Semi class eight. Yep. Class eight. I, I always get really confused because we it works differently uh, in Europe. But big trucks, basically. So the big, it's the commercial vehicle industry. Big trucks for long haul trucking. Yep, big big trucks. And we started with the most difficult problem to solve, which is long haul trucking. Yeah, um, it's very much a, a challenge to compete with an industry that's been around for so long that have have uh, pushed the envelope on the diesel front to figure out how to optimize those powertrains to the nth degree. Yeah. And it has an infrastructure out there that supports those trucks all over the world, right? And so we, we came up with a business plan that could actually disrupt and change the market to a zero emission hydrogen market, right. and which requires a lot, right, for us to actually execute on. Yeah. And it's uh it was a, it was the most challenging problem to solve um, and then in that battery technology has been improving and improving improving so uh, we're also developing and releasing next year a battery electric uh, semi-truck as well for day delivery vehicles so under 300 miles a battery electric trucks work really well with the current technology that's out there yeah and anything over 300 miles you know five 500 600 700 miles you need something that's a little bit more uh, robust and quicker to charge yeah. and then get back on the road uh, to meet the lifetime requirements and the, the cost targets for commercial trucking. So that's where the hydrogen comes in. Okay. The long and, and again, it takes longer to certify. It takes longer to go through all the, the systems on a hydrogen vehicle. Okay. And also the, we've been testing our hydrogen systems to make sure that the, the fuel cells we provide have a lifetime expectancy that we need in order for our customers not to need to replace uh, stacks, things like that. And I, you know, pe people sort of really overlook that, don't they? And it, the, the, how different commercial vehicles are to passenger cars. You know, the um, the life cycle requirement for passenger vehicles is, you know, maybe 2,000, 5,000 hours. But commercial vehicles, they work all day. 20,000 hours plus, right? Yeah, yeah. And you're looking at a million miles, up to a million miles these trucks live. Yeah. And uh, they are... You beat the heck out of them <laughs> during that lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite unusual. I mean, today basically you wouldn't get components really transferring from passenger vehicles up into commercial vehicles because of the life cycle durability requirements. And I think for electrified parts, it's it's still um, you know there's, there's still a lot of challenges making passenger car parts suitable. So you guys have taken a, a I think a really uh, interesting approach in terms of developing everything from scratch but really really because you you had to because you've, you've got a very um, novel powertrain in in your truck haven't you yeah very very novel um, our powertrain is uh, so far been independent motor control each wheel has had its own motor yeah we've had independent suspension we went with that initially on the long haul trucks to reduce the tr the uh, transmission of vibrations into the chassis yeah and from the chassis to the components uh there's a ton less vibrations anyway because you don't have the big vibrations from a diesel engine yeah. beating the crap out of things at high frequencies but uh yeah it's it's been important as an example to look at the full picture to figure out to optimize durability for these yeah. things in lifetime and that so your motors then because some people get a bit we get so many questions about in-wheel motors but just to be clear you're not talking about in-wheel you've got the, the motors are mounted inboard aren't they on the on the chassis and they drive out to the wheel. So you've got a motor and then a, a basically a customized gearbox for each uh, each driven wheel on the truck. 
Yeah, so we have six by four and six by two variants for the truck. The six by four variant is a central gearbox for each axle in the rear. Yeah. And the, each motor has its independent gear set that goes to the, an output shaft right directly to the wheel. Wow. Uh, the six by two option, we've also developed a, an axle that's a differential axle. So two motors on a single differential that drives the wheels directly and it has a more traditional suspension and that's what we use for our trucks okay all right so we have we have both variants and flavors because that the the independent suspension is like groundbreaking i i I don't know another is there another commercial vehicle with independent suspension on the back no it's actually a a, we we own the design and and patent for that and we, we developed that with meritor and it's an adaption from a military vehicles they have developed with the uh, military for off-road capabilities and uh, kind of more flexible type of chassis they have to design around. Oh, wow. Cool. So, so could you tell us, was, you've gone for individual wheel motors. Was there a particular sort of performance requirement or reason that drove that? What, what was the sort of thinking behind that rather than one huge motor? Um, again, we wanted to make it commercially viable. So finding motors that fit in the application that would meet the kind of price targets and durability and efficiency targets that we're looking for. Uh, we found a motor that's very, very efficient and uh, very, very high speed, high torque, but it's optimized for what's again right now commercially available. So independent motors allows us to do additional things like torque vectoring, yeah. torque braking, and regen braking on each wheel. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of advanced controls we can do that even help us on our ADOS side. We have a redundant steering in the torque distribution as well. Oh, wow. So there's some benefits that we gain from it, but ideally it's also been uh, to make it so it's a commercially viable solution that we can source and lock in the source for those components. Yeah, yeah, okay, I see that. Some of the established OEMs where they're kind of trying to do a truck, effectively a conversion. So they're taking an existing chassis powertrain and taking the diesel engine out and putting basically a big motor in where the engine was. That kind of has issues with, they have no space to, to put back batteries and things like that because they've got the prop shaft and all the other sort of the bits in the way. So you must give you some advantages from a packaging point of view as well. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the solutions you see out there, I mean, I've, I've looked at a ton of them, <laughs> but they the, these retrofit systems, they typically keep their rear axle the same yeah. and they bring a drive shaft out of that rear axle into a motor gearbox that uh, is typically a very large motor and a, a, either a single speed or a multi-speed gearbox that can actually transfer the torque from the motor to the to the wheels. Now you've taken up all that space with, a, with an axle from the from the axle to the motor with the drive line and that large motor in the middle of the frame rails and you've taken the capability out to integrate any battery or any storage in that area. Yeah. Our, our battery electric vehicle has a fully integrated axle so everything's built into the axle and there's n- all the space from the front of the axle all the way to the front wheels is available for storage of battery, which allows us to build a, a battery for this truck of over 720 kilowatt hours. It's the largest wow. battery I've ever <laughs> seen in any commercial truck out there. And honestly, our vehicle is the first and only Class A vehicle that I know of that's that's commercially viable for for Class A trucks. I mean, there's some Class Six ones that are out there that are prototyping that are both hydrogen and electric and, and uh, battery electric. And then there's some prototype demo ones, like the Tesla ones, a prototype demo truck that they, they, they want to do a class A vehicle. But really, the only one that's been out there in demos for, for like commercialization is class six. So yeah. it's still 
we're still quite a bit ahead in the industry. We have a lot of people at our tails trying to catch us. Yeah. And, and I think because of the path we took to do things from scratch and develop it as a ground up new development, it allows us to have those architectures ready yeah. that allows us to put the storage we need on there, keep our weight down. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty exciting. So what, one other, another question on the powertrain front, uh, and it, it sort of feeds off that topic of people trying to use um, off-the-shelf stuff versus custom development. So in the for commercial vehicles, one of the sort of areas where people talk a lot about what the right approach is is the system voltage. Um, so you've got some people who advocate the kind of lower voltage that ties more into sort of where the passenger car um, industry are at. Some people talk about some really high voltages, like 2,000 volts, you know, sort of some crazy stuff. Where did you guys end up landing on the on system voltage? Can you talk about that? Yeah, our system voltage, we're an 800-volt architecture for our semi-trucks, and that provides us with enough, for the applications, enough speed of charging Yeah. for the, for the batteries, as well as taking advantage of, of commercially viable uh 800 volt system okay, components yeah. that are out there. If you start getting to the 2000 volts and these crazy voltages above, now you have way more DC-DC developments and things like that that you have to also, again, start from scratch. And and maybe we go there in the next couple of years because of lower currents, maybe it helps reduce weight and things like that. But right now to get to market for next year, I mean, 800 volts is, is really the only way to go. Yeah, okay, cool. And that's still- Low, you know. <laughs> well, and I, I think you know you say you say that very casually about the 800 volts, but it's really like um, not many people are running 800 volts already, you know. And, and particularly when you guys started doing this, no one was running 800 volts. It's like super unusual. I think the the Taycan was the first uh, production car on the road. That it's it's quite unusual in terms of people going up to that level. So it's. I think a big, a big, brave decision, but which actually now is looking like, because lots of people are following uh, on that 800 volts level, so it does look look like it was the right decision for you guys to make. Well, not many commercial trucks can can uh, wait eight hours to, to <laughs> 16 hours to charge a vehicle. Yeah. And so, if you use affordable architecture, you just you just cannot uh, meet the targets for the customers. They have to be able to get in and out and charge it in a reasonable time frame. Yeah. And they're building their own infrastructure anyway to do this at their ports or at their destinations. And so you're not going to be typically pulling up to a Tesla charging station that's out there for Tesla cars, plugging to my trucks, and it's just not a viable yeah. type of solution. And so they, they're meeting to meet the missions that they need from a customer standpoint. They have to have enough energy on board to get out and back uh, to their home base for battery electric trucks. Yeah, yeah. And so there's really no benefit to just, I'm not going to stop it at some gas station and top off my batteries in the middle of the delivery. That just, yeah. you lose money doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the other electric car owners might get a bit annoyed as well with the class eight blocking <laughs> the charge spaces. <laughs> yeah. So the, the other big element in your powertrain is the, is the fuel cell. And people, I feel cells are quite a polarizing technology. You know, some people love them, um, some people hate them. Um, you know, what, what's it been like to try and, and practically commercialize a fuel cell in an application like this? Because I, th I think, again, you're, you guys are really ahead of the curve here in that I know fuel cells in the Chinese market, in sort of 
you know, fairly decent numbers and in some kind of other applications that are very specialized. But you're going to be one of the very first kind of high volume production um, fuel cell vehicles going out onto the road. So that must have been full of challenges in terms of, of getting uh, getting the fuel cells to work properly and at the right sort of maturity level. Yep. And again, it's been this whole, uh, it has been a big debate, right? Fuel cells versus battery, fuel cells versus battery, fuel cells as uh, some people want to call them. Right? I didn't want to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the, the, the fuel cells for the vehicle are a great technology for the application. Yeah. Again, not every application needs this type of technology. It would make no sense to put this kind of technology into a passenger car okay. for most applications and most uh, industries at this point because it's just not there and it's not not needed. You can you can usually meet your requirements with a battery on right. those applications. But commercially, it just stores so much more energy on board. Yeah. And you want to keep the weight so low so they can actually uh, deliver goods from point A to point B. Every every pound you add to the chassis, every pound you add to the powertrain takes away from money in the pocket from the people that are delivering goods. Yeah. And there are there are limitations in the industry that says you can't exceed certain axle loads on every axle. So yeah. there's in the United States and in over in Europe there are requirements that each axle can exceed certain amounts to meet bridge design. Yeah. Right. So you have to not be damaging bridges or, and roads. So this is a an inherent problem of battery electric storage. Is it's super heavy. Yeah. So it's it's if I could get a battery electric truck that weighed almost nothing or exactly <laughs> what a diesel would, we we'd do battery electric all day long because it's much more efficient. Yeah. But because there is no battery out there, there is no technology, and the roadmap for that is not. Uh, not in time for yeah. really solving the zero emission problem. Fuel cells work really good. You look at the, some of the best automakers in the world, Toyota, for example, they have a roadmap to replace every vehicle in Japan with a fuel cell vehicle. Yeah. Right. And zero emission. So they're looking at uh, a whole infrastructure over there to, to have a hydrogen infrastructure that does both commercial trucks and passenger cars. And they've developed the Toyota Mirai. You've got Hyundai developing fuel cell trucks and, and fuel cell cars and yeah. SUVs. And so it, it's, a, it's a race. And you, you look at kind of the traditional OEMs uh, in the U.S., they've not really been off-center. They don't really know which way to go or jump into. Yeah. And then you have the disruptors like Tesla saying, okay, we're going to do all electric, battery electric, and they're going to push that envelope as far as they can go. Yeah. And you got the, the, the slowest moving, but I think highest quality vehicles that are out there are Toyotas. Yeah. And, and they're very conservative on, on the technologies they select and they work with. And it, I think it says a lot that they are 100% in on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and have no battery electric only vehicles that I know of on yeah. the roadmap. So yeah. I, again, there's just, you kind of look at the, the whole breadth of the industry and the market and there's a lot to, to take in and understand who the players are and, and who's pushing for what. You know? Yeah. And that that segues in actually. So one of the comments that we often get about fuel cells is on the efficiency point. So you've got the 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 cost and efficiency, energy efficiency to generate the hydrogen in the first place, but then the the cost and and uh, and the sort of efficiency in terms of the energy conversion on the truck. Um, so what what what's your thinking on that? I mean, I've seen people recently trying to say that. Um, basically, fuel cells end up more expensive to operate than diesel, but I, 
I, I don't know, is that, do you think that's right and you get the zero emission benefit or do you see basically a, 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 a total cost of ownership benefit over a conventional diesel? That's, a, that's about six questions all in one there. So if you want to unpick that a little bit, uh, feel free. So fuel cell efficiency, what do you think about that? And how does the total cost of ownership work out compared to a diesel truck? There's, there's the two questions. Well, first and foremost, I hate inefficiencies because what that does is it requires uh, more cooling yeah. on the vehicle. Yeah. And so efficiency is always expelled through heat. Yeah. It's not through emissions. It's not through any kind of negative impact on the environment. It just makes our challenge much more challenging because now we have to cool the, the system to meet the, the requirements for the efficiency loss. Yeah. Now, if you talk about whether it's more expensive or not, or why you pick one or the other, it's really the total cost of ownership and money in the pocket for the, the operator owner of really, will they make money on this? Will it be more expensive than diesel or not? So efficiencies are only a factor if that becomes a problem. Okay. So if now they cannot get fuel at a price that makes them money, or they cannot uh, uh, get to point A to point B with enough energy on board, then all of a sudden they don't have a business model. Yeah. yeah. So in our business model and in our negotiations, we're doing long-term contracts for both electricity and for building our stations. Yeah. That is something that we we hyper focus on to make sure we can meet those targets for the the cost of electricity and the, the cost of the of the system, the maintenance of the systems to produce the hydrogen. Okay. And so again, that's a that's a big problem, but that's all part of the equation. So yeah, we'd hate to give up that thirty percent efficiency, for example. Yeah. But it's uh, it's something we have to build into the business model to accommodate so we can still beat diesels in a in a cost per per mile okay. race. And just to just picking up on that, the, when you say the cost of electricity, that's because you guys are, you're building an infrastructure of uh, electrolyzers, basically, aren't you? So you're going to be um, it's all going to be green hydrogen. So no kind of. Uh, is it gray or blue? Blue. No blue hydrogen in uh, in your network. As much as possible. Yeah. So we're building up. Uh, we're the benefit of our stations is we are oversizing them. Okay. And we want to produce hydrogen when green electricity is available to us. Okay. We'll be buying green electricity, and that's the big challenge with uh, the current infrastructure of uh, the electricity in the world today yeah. is there is a threshold in which uh, building more wind turbines, building more solar fields becomes a huge challenge to the grid because you have a very peak uh, demand and you have a peak uh, production yeah. and those do not match up at all in any industry that I know of for producing electricity when it comes to green. And so to do that, they have to turn on and off the, the blue or, yeah. or the brown or the different types of electricity and they have to scale up nuclear scalar up or down coal that type of stuff to balance the grid yeah and so that's why these people are working on battery storage systems and stuff like that but we can take the electricity directly in an instant yeah and we can produce hydrogen store the hydrogen on board for our for our stations yeah. and and turn it off so if they have a peak uh, like windstorm that comes through, we can produce a ton of hydrogen, right? Uh, and we don't have to turn off megawatts of power. They can literally just give it to us for pennies. <laughs> and we can create hydrogen. We're like awesome. Same thing with solar. When you have great solar days and uh, they don't have to turn down their other plants to do what they need to do for the balance of the grid. Yeah. And so it's a really big grid balancing benefit. Yeah. 
which will help us scale up in the world to more and more green energy being being produced. Yeah. And it'll be able to take the load off of the need for some of this brown energy or the other energy that has to be produced to balance grid right now. Oh, fantastic. So, so essentially the model is that you'll be able to use um, electricity from the grid um, when it's at low demand from the rest of the grid. So you can buy it, uh, I guess, probably more cheaply to generate hydrogen that then you guys can store in your hydrogen stations to when the trip comes in that it needs it. And then essentially the station will recharge itself again at leisure, utilizing the best mix of lowest cost electricity, greenest electricity, et cetera, coming from the grid. Yep. And in that, we've also partnered with uh, the largest producer of solar cells, uh, Hanwha, okay. where they're able to scale up their production of solar cells and solar fields and, and start contracting these areas to help sell us electricity, right? right. Yeah. So it's, again, expanding the green technology that's out there and uh, taking that green energy and producing hydrogen from it. It's uh, amazing. It's, uh, I hate the chicken and the egg analysis, but it's kind of both, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I can, now you've said it, it just seems so obvious and, and particularly for a truck, because I think people are looking at, um, so charge stations, uh, I, I know a few guys who are involved in this uh, sort of business where they are doing uh, grid, in, grid support batteries. And one of the things, I don't know if in the, in the US it's happening, but in Europe, sometimes for a car charging station, you know, if you want to have 20 charge points for car uh, cars, um, people are dropping a battery in as well to, to kind of, so they don't have to put such a big incoming feed in from the grid, so the battery kind of buffers it all out. But I know um, people are starting to hit issues when basically it turns into a, a like a bus depot because the battery you need is so huge. So you end up with a very expensive grid connection and having to sort all that out and a huge battery and an expensive battery but your approach is kind of um it, it, you know using the using the electrolyzer and storing the hydrogen so you've got a, a smaller overall system there and you're able to um to, to basically work with uh with a, a smaller grid feed because you're all about trucks so so you know all of these refueling points are going to be just for trucks where you need to be able to smack a, a huge amount of energy into the into the truck very quickly, so it can get on its way. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really uh, it's a it's a great model. Um, I, I had a question on the fuel cell. Um, I don't know if you can tell us this or not, but um, so in the last few weeks, I or uh, in the last couple of months, we've done some really interesting podcasts with a couple of different companies who do fuel cell technology. Uh, so we talked to some guys who do PEM fuel cells. Um, and some other guys who do uh, SOFC uh, fuel cells. Um, which kind are you using in the truck? Are you SOFC or are you uh, PEM? So low temperature PEM or the the uh, more sort of steel cell high temperature SOFC? So the, the current one that we're developing right now and putting in the truck is a PEM cell. Okay. And uh, again, we're, we're up to speed on all the different fuel cell technologies out there. And we have a roadmap to make sure we stay ahead of the curve to make the, have the most efficient, most durable and reliable okay. and efficient fuel cell out there. But uh, to get to production the time frame, we're finalizing our, our PEM, PEM fuel cell development right now. Okay. It's, uh, it's in partnership with Bosch, which has been publicly announced. And so Bosch is, is helping us man, uh, manufacture and produce our fuel cell at the okay. Nikola fuel cell. And uh, they're experts in, in commercialization of automotive components. And so yeah. they'll make this thing with us as robust as, yeah. as it ever could be, right? They make good baseball caps as well. 
yeah. we're not recording this but Dane's wearing a Bosch baseball cap <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to also mention with fuel cells which is something that maybe people do not remember or think about is the sustainability of the materials being used in these different systems mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be a challenge and it is a challenge currently in the world the re- uh, recycling of battery technology and and also the materials that are being sourced for those batteries being um, kind of comp- confrontational right or, or yeah. it's 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 not the best in the world uh, this battery um, source and uh, this, this disposal but a fuel cell 99% of that stuff can be be recycled Right. It's not a lot of uh, components in there that, that can't be reused and built into another fuel cell or another vehicle. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very recyclable, sustainable system from the, from the beginning to end in the life. And of course, so that's, yeah. a, that's a huge benefit from a powertrain that we see as well. Especially given the size of battery packs potentially that you need in these, uh, in these trucks. So you're uh, yeah. 10... 10, 15 times the problem that the uh, passenger car would have. So, yeah, and, uh, that's a really good point in terms of um, that sustainability, recyclability of the materials, because it is a big topic which people keep talking about. There's big stuff the last couple of weeks about nickel production. Obviously, cobalt's controversial uh, in terms of uh, cobalt production and lithium itself, actually, uh, a bit of, you know, there's difficulties around that too. So, that's um, it's going to be a big part of the 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 sort of discussion moving forwards as we're trying to make everything uh, everything much cleaner. So yeah, um, mo- moving moving on then, Dane. You've done the IPO um, and you also moved completely moved. So you, you mentioned earlier uh, when the business started, you guys were in uh, Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake City, and you moved to uh, Phoenix in Arizona, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, we're and, and I was just wondering about the, the, the sort of reasons behind that. So, um, and, and what's it been like? Because obviously it's not, I don't know, in, in the UK particularly, that would be quite unusual to, and because you, all the staff moved as well. So in Europe, people don't tend to do that. But um, I sort of looked on with amazement as everyone just kind of, yeah, it was, it was almost just sort of, I don't know, no one even seemed to question it. <laughs> so first of all, why did you move? And then what's it been like to do such a big, a big move like that? Well, let me start with it wasn't like no big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah. I have uh, six kids and, uh, and my wife wow. uh, was very anxious about moving. Yeah. Uh, she'd always lived in Utah yeah. her whole life. And so to make this move and make a decision as a family, this is the move we were going to make. With, and with a, such a new company and a new technology, that were, it, it was a challenge for pretty much every employee to make that determination whether they'd move or not. Okay. It wasn't just a fly-by-night decision. That being said, I was very impressed. We only we only lost like two or three people yeah. through the move. And uh, everyone else decided to move down with us, which is about 35 to 40 employees okay, yeah. at that point. And so that uh, spoke speaks volumes of like of our commitment and our belief in what we're doing. It, uh, is something that we were willing to disrupt our families to to make happen, and, yeah. And it's uh, it's panned out so far, right? We have uh, made a lot of progress, but the reason for the move is we had to find a, a place that'd be suitable for our manufacturing facility, yeah, and a workforce that could support that manufacturing, yeah. And 
we, we went to many states, we evaluated the benefits and kind of the, the interest of those states to help us uh, get things up and running because it does take a lot of red tape trying to allow a new manufacturing facility to get up and running. Yeah. And who was going to help us get through that red tape the best. And Arizona honestly came back with the, the winning argument and the winning offer. Okay. And so they also in Phoenix, there's a it's a it's a city of about five million people, oh, wow. uh, fifth largest city in the United States. And so the access to universities there and workforce and ability yeah. to expand their capabilities in Phoenix is is something that we were very interested in. It's much bigger yeah. than Salt Lake, really. Much, much, much bigger than Salt Lake. Salt Lake's uh, maybe it's less than a million in Salt Lake. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I didn't realize there's such a huge difference. Yeah. No. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so, so those are some of the reasons why we moved down. And when we moved down here, uh, it has been a little bit easier to recruit. And mm -hmm. we've had people and our, our company's grown really well. We've added so, like, what, 300 people in about um, a year. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, accelerating. Uh, in our manufacturing, we're going to be manufacturing in Coolidge. We just broke ground to our Coolidge manufacturing facility. Uh, we anticipate about 2,000 employees out of that facility. We start hiring for that, uh, I believe, this year, and we start producing trucks out of that facility in phase one next year. Wow. So there's uh, three phases of that build for the factory, and the first phase will be up and running next year with uh, the new hires for that facility. So, yeah. again, a lot to do in a short time, but we keep uh, amping up the, the yeah. pace. So. Faster and faster, and it, the your sort of headquarters building, the engineering facility, that was a was that a new building or was that an existing building that you've converted across? I can't quite remember. So it was a, the four walls were up and the ceiling was on, but we you know, took off the ceiling and we redid the entire side for the walls or anything, yeah. and built it up to be a Nikola headquarters, and uh, we put our hydrogen station on site as well. Right. So it did it. it help us that the four walls were up but we uh yeah we basically built everything and it looks amazing i mean uh, if, if people i'll put some links in the show notes to it but uh you've got it's enviable facilities uh i mean the the gym is is something to behold apart from anything <laughs> so yep, I don't know, have you have do you actually have the time to go in the gym <laughs> i used to <laughs> yeah. COVID has uh, kind of put a wrench in my exercise plan. So oh, okay. I have gym because I work from home or I've been working remote a little bit more often. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's still used. It's open anytime the employees want to go in. It's a very, very nice gym. Nicest gym I've ever worked in. <laughs> and uh, it's it's pretty fun. And then the rest of the facility is, is a, it's a very open layout. So we have a lot of collaborative spaces that we can work together and we have a central collaborative space that everyone comes and does all their meetings in. Yep. So it allows us for a lot of open communication. We don't want to have a lot of silos in the company. It's one of the most unique cultures of a company I've ever worked in. And it's the most, I mean, I, I tell people this when they interview, it, it'll be the funnest place you work and, and also the hardest. It's super yep. exciting. People don't, don't come in and stay late hours because they're yelled at and they're told they have to yeah. they come because they really want to change things they really want to, to make a difference yeah. so yeah there's quite a few people that work a lot of hours but uh just the type of people and the type of culture of working there were just all again a very unique bunch of people yeah. they may be odd a little bit i don't know but it's uh 
it's a fun place to work and it's a very i think the best best word i've heard to describe it is collegial okay yeah and that i mean that's come that comes from you guys right so you know yourself trevor the, the people who've been there right from the start so what what is what is trevor like to work with you, you can tell me go on <laughs> He is challenging. I yeah. could say that he challenges us every day, yeah. and he wants to push the envelope. And uh, I, I love his attitude of can do. Um, he doesn't like to think of things of why they can't work. He likes to think of how can we make things work. Yeah. Uh, but it does put a challenge on engineers when he, uh, he, he says, "Okay, this is what we're doing," and we say, "Trevor, that's not." that's not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so we work with him and we work together and uh, we understand a little more his vision of what he wants. And he pushes us past boundaries that we're really, uh, weren't willing to consider initially because we engineers love the easy path. We love to make sure it's guaranteed success. It's engineered, just it's already done almost right. And you're just integrating it. Yeah. But uh, we've, we've really, been able to push past a lot of those boundaries and and uh, push the envelope and it's been fun oh brilliant but yeah, he's a fun guy to work for too another thing about trevor um he's the most personal and personable ceo i've ever worked for a lot of these <laughs> driven guys that are that are basically driven to make success uh, are willing to plow through anyone to get there yeah and when push comes to shove you know they'll they'll chew your ear off and make you feel this small yeah. And that's not a fun environment to work in. I've never had Trevor do that to me, or I've never seen Trevor do that to anybody in the company. Yeah. He's he's very compassionate. He wants to improve the lives of his employees. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't accept uh, no. Oftentimes, uh, yeah. he, he he considers your your input, but he wants to push you. Yeah. But he does it in a very compassionate way. And then he's he's very generous to to us and in, in the way that he he treats us as employees. So I. I really appreciate that as a person, Trevor's, and that, that has to do with the culture, right? Yeah. So that breeds a culture in the company where we are also encouraged to be helpful to each other and, and not uh, demeaning, or we're not trying to build ourselves up to some like, okay, I'm, I have this title, right? I'm a CTO for Nikola, yeah. but that doesn't really mean much inside of Nikola. I'm, I, <laughs> I just work alongside everybody. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just a lot of fun to work with everybody, and everyone has good input. And when it comes to decisions, the buck stops at places. But yeah, it's a very open culture where we work together to get stuff done. I, I think that's so important. You know, it, it's a lot of companies sort of pay lip service, I think, to the importance of culture and the importance of of treating your staff right. You know, you often hear people talk about uh, our staff are our most important asset, but then they don't really act like that you know it, it just they're just saying it because they have to and that you can you can feel the second you walk through the door you can feel you can taste the difference in in companies that really take that seriously where they have that really strong uh can-do culture and and spirit I, lo- I absolutely love that i think it's uh i think it's so important particularly you know you guys are doing something that's really hard like it's 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 a very very big challenge you're trying to do you're trying to change an entire industry that to be frank doesn't particularly want to be changed um so you know it's a it's a tough challenge to get the product right to get the uh, get the industry acceptance etc so you know you it, you absolutely have to have a strong culture to underpin that yeah it also it also helps with building the the, the relationships and partnerships that we've needed to develop yeah so i can guarantee that we wouldn't have been able to develop the relationships with bosch 
yeah. uh, or with the CNHI, Aveco, if we didn't have the team that we have in yeah. place today and the culture that we have in place. You know, no one wants to work with a company that's difficult to work with. There are people that are difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And in, even in the investor world, as we got long-term investors in, we had a lot of people come through and, and evaluate our company. And, yeah. and, and the things that I heard most from them, besides that they loved our technology, loved where we're going, loved our business model, was they believed in our team and they saw how we kept retention of our team and the type of people that we have on board. Yeah. And they, they're buying into us as much as they're buying into the idea. Yeah. And, and great people can make amazing things happen as yeah. long as we, we're, we're driven and we stay focused and we can all push together. We start fighting against each other. There's no way in hell this will happen. I'm just saying, right? Yeah. It's hard enough. It's hard enough. And so, yeah. That's a big reason why we've been able to make the steps we've been making is because of the people yeah. along with the technology and business plan. And I, I yeah, I, I, know, I know all too well the, 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 the challenges that, um, that, that you, you talk about there. So you mentioned investors. Obviously, the IPO was a big deal. You know, it, so technically, was it a re- reverse, reverse takeover? Rather than an IPO, yeah, reverse acquisition, reverse acquisition. So you're now listed on the uh, on the stock exchange, and that has that changed much? You know, you've gone from being a small, like a privately held company, kind of hidden, tucked away, um, to being so much in the public eye and, and a listed uh, a listed business. That has that changed how you guys have to have to work? Uh, not a much, not very much. Uh, it, what it does change is we have to have a lot more accounting uh, and uh, legal people on board to make sure we do our filings and we, we mm-hmm. communicate a lot more uh, to the outside world what's going on every quarter. So there's been a lot of growth in that side of the business. Okay. Um, it's also put a lot of pressure on us because we have to meet. It's not just like we run out of money, right? Yeah. We have to meet uh, deliverable dates. So when we say we're going to production next year, and we start uh, promising those dates, there is a lot of um, accountability that we, we, we talk about every week. Yeah. We say, okay, are we on track? What are the risks? How do we pull it forward? Because we know that the market's not going to be forgiving from us uh, going for, going backwards on what we say. Yeah. If we can't show earnings, we have to show deliverables. Right? Yeah. We, we're still pre-revenue. Pre, pre, uh, yeah. And so getting your revenue as quickly as possible and delivering on what we say we were ready for and we are ready for yeah. is something that just puts a lot more focus on the team to make sure we deliver on those deliverables. So that's, that's the main focus. I mean, it does help us in some ways because we're able to get the, the money that we need to grow the business and build the factory. Yeah. But it also gives a little bit more incentive to, um, to actually deliver yeah. and not say, well, we can wait six more months or whatnot. We don't intentionally do that, but you know how projects do. You, there's always improvements you want to make. Yeah, finding that point where it is good enough is is the is the trick to managing an engineering group, uh, basically. Yeah. It's, uh, there's always something else you can do, and everyone wants to add features and benefits and just do another round of testing and just – so, yeah, diff, diff, difficult uh, thing, really difficult challenge. Yeah. So at this point, our, our specs frozen on our, our trucks in uh, pre-production, and we're going for validation testing. So yeah. uh, the pencils are down, yeah. and we don't have, we don't have a chance to add really. <laughs> so it's uh, 
a different phase, right? It's, yeah. I, I like the invention phase. That's my favorite phase of development is creating something new that's not been done before. Yeah. This productive phase is, is just a lot of work. And yeah. it's, uh, it's important and, and it's good that we have it, but uh, it's less fun for me. <laughs> I, I love the third phase. Yeah. And so, so going into that productionization phase, you said sort of the pencils are down. Will there be kind of any changes to the the vehicle as it goes through the next sort of uh, steps on its way to getting into series production? What what are you will will you kind of um, do you think do you do you think there'll be any significant changes or do you think it'll kind of uh, just get into production as is? Well, there, there there could be some some changes based on what what comes out of the reliability and durability testing. Okay. But uh, with, with partnering with Aveco that's produced trucks for for decades yeah. and understanding their capabilities to to run accelerated testing both in simulation and in real life, yeah. we don't anticipate major changes in yeah. the chassis, suspension, structure of the vehicle, in the powertrain. All that stuff is is something we'll probably find small little bugs or mm. or things or fixing wires a little bit differently here or there or yeah, Rub, rubbing hoses, that type of stuff you find in any vehicle that you develop for the first time. Yeah, but not significant. It's a, it is what it is, and it's an awesome truck, the Nikola Train. Cool. Uh, so you mentioned um, Aveco, uh, CNHI. So um, I think it confuses me to be honest, uh, but just I'll, I'll kind of sort of preamble this. So CNHI is uh, is the sort of commercial vehicle brand. Um, which Aveco is part of. So it used to be part of the Fiat group. So essentially, um, uh, Fiat Automobiles had a commercial vehicle and a construction equipment division. The construction equipment and agricultural vehicles were always marketed under the CNH brand, so Case New Holland, people will know that. Uh, they had the Aveco truck brand, various other different um, bus and, and truck brands as well. But when they split the company into two, so they had the commercial vehicle business and the passenger vehicle business, they branded the commercial vehicle business CNHI, CNH Industrial, um, and it and it, it confuses a lot of people. But you've you've got this relationship now with CNH. Um, you mentioned a couple of times. So can can you tell us about that? What what is the relationship? How are you working with them? Are they going to help you with the trucks for the U.S. market? Because they're not really as a truck brand. They're not really active in in North America. Um, or is it mainly for the European market? What's how, how is that working out with, uh, with CNH? That's a good, good question. Joint development with CNHI is the parent company. Aveco is their commercial truck arm for that, uh, that uh, parent company. And the CNHI-Aveco partnership is we get to share in their development of the vehicle for Europe. Yeah. And uh, there'll be Nikola trucks in Europe. Okay. But we can their their distribution, their service network, all that stuff for Europe because they do Europe and in other parts of the world, yeah. uh, Aveco trucks. Yeah. And so there'll be a Nikola truck that that leverages and partners in doing that for Europe. The U.S. side, they're they're actually taking our trucks for the first trucks and building them in Europe and shipping them to the U.S. for the first initial production oh, until right. our is up and running so we actually have a factory that we're ramping up over there that will be our european factory yeah but u.s trucks are coming out the line initially ah, okay. and uh, then we'll be transitioning into building them over here 
So they're, they're helping us ramp up our factory in the U.S. from their expertise of building trucks. And they're also helping us build our initial trucks in Europe and for the U.S. Um, so that's kind of the way the partnership works. Uh, yeah. And then we're kind of married at the hip. Ah, fantastic. So so just to wrap up then, uh, Dane, what are you most excited about in the in the next year? I know you've got so much going on. You must be excited about loads of things. But what, what's, what are you most excited about in the coming year? I'm most excited to get a truck in customers' hands and delivering freight. Yeah. That's going to be the most exciting thing for me is to to be able to show that, hey, this is a, a real truck that uh, does amazing. It's got the longest ra- range of any battery electric truck in the market. Yeah. It also has the, the lowest weight and best in class and everything that we can and have worked so hard to get there. Also, to, to demonstrate and show our next generation fuel cell trucks and uh, in the roadmap to getting those out for 2023. So that is also super exciting for me. Uh, there's just so many. This next year is going to be insane for Nikola. We thought the last few years were crazy. I mean, think about it. Nikola's going to have a manufacturing facility up and running next year. We're going to have production yeah. and running correct with customers. We're going to have our first stations up and running. And so there's going to be a ton of firsts for Nikola and groundbreaking events for Nikola. Yeah. Not just from a factory standpoint, but from a you know milestone. And so I just see Nikola really taking that and uh, finding great success in it because there's been a lot building up to, to allow us to do this. And so it's exciting to open the gates and let the, these, these horses out. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So that's great. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, we said, few times how busy you are you've got loads of things on so i really appreciate you taking the time to uh to do this with me today um thank you my pleasure thanks again for inviting me have a good one that's all we've got time for today on the avid podcast so that's been really fascinating talking to dane uh the nicholas story is an amazing one i know there's a lot of haters out there so people who kind of don't believe what they've got or you know, all this, I think uh, I think a lot of the criticism that they get is, is really uncalled for and, and unjustified. Um, but I guess that's kind of what happens when you uh, become a, a listed company, particularly in the US, um, where people make money out of shorting businesses and such like. So um, I really wish Nicola all the success. I, I wish Dane all the success in the future. He's an absolutely fantastic guy. Um, brilliant team they've got there. I hope you've got some value out of that too. Don't forget to subscribe. So still a lot of people listening to the podcast who haven't subscribed. Um, make sure you subscribe. You get the updates when we uh, release new episodes. We've had some absolutely amazing uh, comments and feedback recently. Um, so thank you very much if you're listening and, and you left us a comment or some feedback recently. Really appreciate that. You know, it's so good to get those comments and that feedback. Um, don't forget, you know, if you've got a question to ask or you have a comment or you give us some feedback, please do that. It really helps the podcast. It helps get it out there in front of more people. And when you hit like or give us a rating and uh, and engage with us on, the, on those comments and feedback. So uh, please don't forget to do that. So thank you. Um, and I really look forward to speaking to you again soon.